want to start this by having a bit of a disclaimer. I'm not a preacher by any stretch. Um, so if we think of this as being a Sunday school class or maybe sitting in your living room, we'll, we'll all be a lot happier. And, I, and I'm not the most dynamic speaker either, even though I have good role models and people like David and, and Brother Peter. Peter, I love your energy. All right. And that's the best I can do, so hang in there. Um, we do want to talk about the ministry, but I also felt led to talk about a couple of other items first to give a larger context to what we're doing over there. So just as a, as a beginning statement, we, do, uh, we are with Holyland Ministries. We operate two Christian schools in Palestine. One is in Hebron and one in Bethlehem. So with that as a, a beginning statement, we'll kind of move on. I do want to talk about uh, missions in general. Also review uh, what Palestine is all about these days, especially since of the war. A lot of ignorance out there. A lot of people saying, what's going on? We'll try to clarify that. Um, also to discuss a little bit about it's like what it's like to serve or, or uh, engage Muslims in, in this world. And then we'll talk about the, the ministry. So in terms of missions, I think it's very, very clear that we have a, a strong uh, biblical mandate to missions to, to spread the gospel. There are many, many verses. I picked two to look at. Together. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Verse 1. Also Acts. And by the way, I picked two verses, one's from Matthew, one from Acts. You notice Pastor David read from Matthew and Acts. It might be good books to read this week, just saying. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Two very simple uh, verses, but they're, they're, they're good. I like them because in, in simple terms, they both show the what, the how, and the where of, of missions. In terms of the what, you have um, uh, these active words, go in Matthew, go therefore, baptizing, teaching. In Acts, it talks about being witnesses or witnessing to, to the world. As far as the how goes, uh, in Matthew, it says, I am with you always. That's very encouraging and speaks to the, the name that, that we draw on that, that Pastor David spoke of a, little, a few minutes ago. And also receiving power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. So there's lots of, of meat in here. And then the where. This is interesting, too. In Acts 1.8, it says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And in modern thinking that might be considered to be our uh, city or state, then our country, then the world at large. So smaller to larger. Same thing applies. And I would say that everybody here today who's a believer in Jesus has been a beneficiary of people in your lives sometime in the past who have been faithful to this mandate. And it may have been a one-time conversation with a huge aha moment, or it might have been multiple conversations over a number of years where you finally kind of get it and you, and you give your life to Christ. But the point is, everyone here is a beneficiary of somebody 
following Jesus and, and telling you about him. And the question I have today is, we should all have, how will we, as believers, leaving this door this morning, uh, be a beneficiary to someone else? I think of it as a giant uh, pay-it-forward game, the best one ever. So I like that context. I kind of think about that as we talk today and, and then leave after the, uh, after, the, uh, after the service. In terms of missions, I have two points to, to discuss just briefly. Um, well, the second one, the first one was the mandate. The second one will be our, we have a language problem, I think. I don't think it's English to Chinese or uh, German or those, those types of language problems. I'm talking about a language problem within the missions community itself. I don't think we have a very good vocabulary describing what we can do in various ways within missions. And think about it, we have, uh, it's, it's been said that Eskimos have, a, you know, dozens of words for snow. And I looked it up, it's true, it's not just urban legend. They have sp specific words for snowflake, frost, fine snow, snow on the ground, deep, uh, soft, deep snow, fresh snow, snow bank, it goes on. And they care about snow so much, they have these specific words they use to describe snow. Within the English language, think of a simple advance uh, example of the the, uh, the word good. It's a, it's a good word, but also we use words like acceptable, excellent, great, marvelous, satisfying, wonderful. They all speak to good and have different nuances of that word. And my problem personally, I think we don't have enough of those types of words to describe missionaries and mission work. For instance, we have long-term mission, short-term mission, maybe medical mission could be thrown in there. After that, we have a very short list. But how about Bible translators or someone who's administrator for a missions agency who works be behind the scenes, much that Lois and I do, actually? How about the person who has a very good job, purposely works overtime to send more money over overseas for missions? That's, that's huge. Um, about the person who has a regular Bible study in their neighborhood for years. No word for that. Or teaching Sunday school for 30 years. No word for that either. So all to say, we need a better vocabulary. And why I share that, I don't really know, quite honestly, but it's a pet peeve of mine, and I have a captive audience today, so you can stuck with my venting. So as you go out, focus on that, realize that whatever you're doing to fulfill this mandate, uh, there may not be a word for it, but, you, but you're doing missions work. And as we said, when Lois and I leave this room, we'll be focusing on uh, the Muslim world, and Palestine in general. I want to talk a little bit about what is Palestine all about, because it's a very confusing part of the world. Did I go too far? There we go. I want to talk about Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza, a few terms like that. We've all heard the news lately. Um, Palestine, actually, the, the root word goes back to like 12th century uh, Egypt. It's 12th century B.C. Egypt, a word called Palisette. Biblically, of course, we think of the Philistines. It's a, it's a related word. And fast forward to today, Palestine is basically the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Those two geographic areas together make up Palestine. So what's the West Bank? We'll see it up here. It's the part that's white. I describe it very often as a backwards capital B. Do you see that shape? 
Um, it's about as big as Delaware, size-wise. Population, roughly three, 3 million people, and about 50,000 Christians. And that number stayed pretty much uh, consistent through the years. Uh, we have more and more Christians um, becoming believers, so to speak, but a lot of people leave as well, so it kind of stayed static. So it's about 2% of the population in uh, the West Bank is Christian, somewhat higher in Bethlehem because there's more of a historical tie to the Christian faith in Bethlehem. The next part is hugely confusing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it is terribly confusing. But they have um, different security zones. There we go. How's that for a map? This represents three different security zones, A, B, and C, in, in the West Bank. And one of them is where the Palestinians control both civic activities as well as security. Uh, another one, I think it's B, where uh, Palestine controls civic, but Israel controls the security. And zone C is where Israel controls everything. So if you think you have trouble getting from town to town around here, try living over there. It's absolutely nuts. So to move on, then, the Gaza Strip, you'll see that in the, in the bright red at the bottom there, that's the, uh, the Gaza Strip. That's been all the news lately. We don't really know what it means because it's brand new information, basically. But basically, it's a narrow strip of, of land. It's the size of Detroit, think of it that way, with about 2 million people and 1,000 Christians. If you do the math, it's basically 0%, very few Christians. Um, Egypt controlled this area after World War II. Israel took over after the 1967 Six-Day War. And since the Oslo Accords in 93, Palestine controls. There's a lot of history, kind of boring for some people, but basically it's been a land that's been confusing for years, and Palestine does now, uh, or the, the uh, Palestinian Authority does now control uh, Gaza. So I want to talk about Hamas, which everyone's hearing about as well. Hamas started back in the 80s, actually, as a spinoff from, from the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. It won the election, believe it or not, fair and square, mostly, in uh, 2006, and took over as the leading um, uh, group, what do you call it? party, political party, in 2000. And they're, they're known, obviously, you've seen it in the news, they're known for their brutality, uh, their control. In fact, when they took over, did a, a major crackdown on all the competition in government, security, universities, newspapers, everything. Not just non-Muslims, because there were very few of those, but even the, uh, the, the Fatah party, the other party, they, they purged them from the system. So they really took off with, with an iron fist. Uh, and as you know by now, the, one of their major tenets is a total commitment to the destruction of Israel. So that's what's going on there. We can see the... Uh, attacks that happened October 7th. And there's one more party to mention. Uh, it, it's Hezbollah, which is a, a group up in, um, in Lebanon, in, in southern Lebanon mostly. And they're the X factor, in my view. It depends on to what extent they get involved in the war, if it'll be a you know, total worldwide event or, or just, just a regional or local kind of event. 
But Hezbollah is an Iranian-backed militant Islamist group. They've been around um, well for years. I don't know what year they started, but uh, they're basically the most powerful paramilitary force in the Middle East. And I don't have any official leadership in Lebanon, but they're so uh, powerful and they have a lot of influence. They, they basically kind of control a lot of what's going on in Lebanon. So we're, we're watching that. So all that being said, major takeaways. Palestine and Hamas are not the same thing. And that's hugely important to know because you see all these, these uh, protests on TV, pro-Palestine, pro-Palestine. I get it, but, but it's, it's not that clear. These people who are out protesting don't have a clue, in my view, of what the difference is between Palestine and Hamas. And I need to, they need to draw that distinction, and we do too when we're having conversations with, with people. Um, beyond that, most Palestinians are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. Historically, no other Arab nation wants them. They, they're basically saying, you stay put, you have your own problems, we don't want you in our country. Um, and there's been no good leadership to counter what are truthfully heavy-handed policies by Israel. Israel is known for being really tough on uh, water rights and where they can build roads and all sorts of things that really control how the Palestinians can live. So they're looking for leadership of any kind to, to represent them better. And uh, Hamas got elected for that purpose and they just, on steroids and they went rogue, whatever. It's just a, a mess. So basically remember that there's lots of blame to go around. Israel has those aggressive positions and Palestinian politics are, are no uh, good thing either. There's lots of internal issues. They still pay families of, of people who in their view, are martyrs. In Israel's view, they're, they're, they're terrorists. And they've, they've gone up and gotten killed, and um, Palestine pays their family a stipend. So again, lots of blame to go around in terms of uh, who's, who's the bad guy here. And we're not there to talk about politics. We're there to talk about children, which we'll talk about shortly. So if I can, turning from the general to the specific, we want to talk a little bit about reaching Muslims. The good news is there's been more uh, converts from uh, Islam to Christianity in the last 20 years than the previous 200. God is moving. He's moving in, in a big way. Um, some basics to know about uh, their religion. Salvation is strictly works, period. Um, it's a matter of your, your good deeds outweighing the bad deeds. So how do they measure this? Well, basically through uh, the five pillars of faith, which we'll talk about here in a moment. The, the strange thing is they can never truly know for sure, as, as a Muslim, if you're saved or not. Part of this relates to how they view God. They have about 99 names that they all have for God. Many we can relate to, uh, the Holy One, All-Powerful, All-Seeing, things of that nature. But there's two in particular that are, are a departure from how we view God. One is Al-Makr. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but Al-Makr. Uh, and this is a, 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 a trait that says that he can change his mind. God can change his mind or scheme against you, something we cannot relate to uh, in, in the Christian uh, world. Another name is al Montikim or the vengeful one. Again, something we cannot relate to. So these are all reasons why uh, in, the, in the good versus bad pile, they never know if, they, if they've done enough. And it's always been my contention. That's why they're so cranky all the time because they just don't know. So quickly, the five pillars of faith, they got the creed, prayer, 
fasting, almsgiving, and the pilgrimage to Mecca, those five things. And the creed is interesting. If they say this one phrase in the presence of another Muslim, they become a Muslim. Here it is. I testify that there is no God except Allah, and I testify that Muhammad is a messenger of Allah. So if you say that creed in the presence of a Muslim, you're Muslim. You're in the club. That's it. It's a little different than our, our view is of uh, being saved. Second thing is prayer, and this is hugely different. It's, and you know this, I'm sure. It's very ritualistic. It's not relational at all. They pray five times a day. Uh, certain phrases are required, and it's it's just a matter of things they have to do, and there's no relationship in, in the prayer whatsoever. Uh, fasting, they, they fast during Ramadan, during the daylight hours, and they feast in the evening. So basically they're not really, fa- in my view, they're not really fasting as much as just changing their eating schedule. That's kind of the way it works around Ramadan. Uh, that's three. Fourth is almsgiving. Basically they give to Muslim causes, and they also look to their leaders to, to, to know where to give the money. There's very little discerning expected amongst, amongst the, uh, Muslims. And then lastly, the uh, pilgrimage to Mecca called the Hajj. Every able-bodied person is expected to do that at least once in their life. Then they have four holy books. And this is interesting because it, it, it helps us um, minister to those kids in, in the West Bank. Uh, the first one is called the Torah. That's the Torah, basically. Uh, the second one is the Zabur, which is uh, Psalms. Third is the New Testament, which they call the Injil. And fourth is the Quran. So you notice three of those are Judeo-Christian in, in, their, uh, in their Genesis. Now, the common understanding to most Muslims is that the first three books have been um, corrupted by man. Uh, the Jews corrupted the first two, the Old Testament, and Christians have corrupted the New Testament, the Injil. In their view, the only book of the four that stands pure is the Quran. So the good news is it defies all logic, obviously. If, if, if God somehow wrote four books for man and only one is still his word, how did that happen? How, you know, and a good question to ask a good Muslim is, who's, who's, po- who's more powerful, God or man? Well, the answer is obviously God. Well, if God's powerful, more powerful than man, how can three of his books be changed? So it's, a, it's an easy way to have a good conversation with a, with a Muslim. Okay, so that's the, that's the four holy books. And, and the good news is, in, our, in terms of our ministry, we get to use the Injil, the New Testament, in our, in our schools. So that's, that's, as you might imagine, very, very helpful. Um, so two more things to mention very quickly about the Muslim world, Quran and Muhammad. You have to know about those two things. The Quran is a series of visions that Muhammad had over 20 years, written down 20 years after his death. And um, they have something called abrogation. This is getting kind of nerdy here, I know. But... Um, abrogation means to replace. So if you if you hear about different verses or surahs they call them that are inconsistent in the Quran, they have this concept where they abrogate or replace uh, the newer the, the original verses with the newer ones. And this is important because Muhammad had much more uh, conciliatory and peaceful verses early in the Quran when he was still in Mecca, uh, trying to attract Jews and Christians. Later in his life, he had more um, threatening and combative verses. So those are the ones that replace, in their mind, the, the p- more peaceful verses. Just to be aware, that's how they handle that, that craziness in the Quran. 
um, Muhammad, they referred to as the seal of the prophets. He lived in Mecca around 600 AD, so well after uh, Jesus was, was walking the earth. Um, he had visions in Mecca for about 10 years and was basically driven out of town by the polytheists and uh, lack of uh, good response from Christians and Jews. So he, he left from Mecca and went to Medina where he spent 10 years, was more popular there, grew in, in power, actually collected about 10,000 warriors, went back to Mecca and, and took over. So um, he was persistent, if nothing else. So that's the long and the short of it for um, how the Muslims view their world and where they're coming from. Um, there are some basic, beyond what I've said, basic differences or misunderstandings of Christianity by the Muslim mind. Most importantly, and this is interesting, the Trinity. They believe that we think that we worship three gods, God, Jesus, and Mary. They don't see that as a trinity. They, they see that as three different entities. And beyond that, they believe that God has sex with Mary and Jesus was born. So they think that's our belief, and they think we're horrible people for believing that. But very often when you're talking to Muslims, if you clarify our belief in the trinity, that goes a long way to straighten them out. That's helpful. Uh, the crucifixion, they believe an angel replaced Jesus on the cross. Uh, the message, they believe the word of God, as we talked about, was changed by man. And salvation, we've talked about also, is by works, not by grace, that each individual is responsible for his own sin. So that being said, there are some similarities of Christianity, and this is, this is the good part where you can start to engage Muslims where we have some common, some common ground. It's a monotheism. Uh, Muhammad was at least uh, right in that regard, worshiping one god and not many gods, as, as was a common practice when he was uh, when he was around. Uh, man is sinful. They do agree. Man was sinful. We can we can relate to that. Also, Jesus was actually a revered uh, person in the Quran. He's he's considered to be a prophet, not just that, but a sinless prophet, and that's key. No other prophet, even in the Quran, is described as a sinless prophet. He's also mentioned four times as often in the Quran as Muhammad is. So we have a lot to, uh, to work with there, so to speak, by talking about Jesus, even, even in the Quran. To summarize in the briefest terms, basically, if you're a, if you're a Muslim, you are raised in the faith to obey. It's a, it's a head issue. You're a Christian, you're raised in the faith to worship. That's a hard issue. If nothing else, the last 10 minutes, remember that in your, in your halfway home. So to, to get more specific on how to engage with Muslims, um, we want to do interesting, which is pretty much the same as non-Muslims, which is good. Remember, first of all, that our role is, that, is as ambassadors. And by that I mean an ambassador represents the greater power but doesn't have that power necessarily. An ambassador can fill out your paperwork and help you become a citizen, but it's not his job to make you a citizen. So I think that's encouraging to us as believers, and it kind of takes, takes away some of the pressure. It's not our job to save people. It's our job to tell people the world's already been saved. And as an ambassador, that's what we can do. So beyond that, there are some attitudes and strategies that are very helpful. Uh, and again, Muslim or non-Muslim, really doesn't matter. To be loving, 
Most Muslims and most people in general have never met an authentic Christian. If we show them Christ's love and patience, that will, will go a long way to kind of encouraging them in the faith. And basically, if you live a life of integrity and live consistently by your Christian standards, people notice. That's what they're giving. But be loving. Be friendly. Don't argue or criticize. Most Muslims know their world is broken. They already know that. They know it's not working. Our job is to show them a better way. And that's easy to do. Also, build a bridge in the theme of being friendly. Build a bridge with things that you know we have in common. And that goes a long way. And at the risk of, of sounding off track here, I will say that we can acknowledge that Muhammad did do some good things. He, uh, like I said, he started a, a monotheistic religion. He got rid of lots of idols that were prevalent in that day. He reunited many of uh, the Arab tribes at that time. He stopped infanticide, which was a common practice back then. And believe it or not, back in those days, relatively speaking, he gave more rights to women. Hard to believe considering our, 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 our world today, but initially he did. I also think that Islam is better at treating their lives holistically. I think as a Christian, we tend to be Christians on Sunday, soccer dads on Saturday, and business guys or whatever, Monday through Friday. We, we just don't always get the fact that we should always be the same person throughout the week. This they have right. So just final thoughts on how to engage them. A, a good conversation starter is what do you do when your good deeds and your bad deeds, deeds weigh exactly the same? They struggle with that. Good place to start talking. You don't need to be an expert in Islam in spite of all these comments. You want to be an expert in Jesus. That's what you need to know. Um, if you're in the Treasury Department and you're looking for counterfeit money, you don't study counterfeit money all day. You, count, you, you study the real, the real thing. When a counterfeit comes along, you know the difference. Same thing here. Um, socially, it's good to have men uh, interact with men, women with women. Just a, a, a good advice there, just socially. So now with all that behind us, let's drill down a little bit, if I can, on what our ministry is all about and how we fit in the larger context. We know Palestine's a mess. It's been a mess politically, socially, economically for years. Um, something that, that our ministry has known for decades and the world since October 7th was just figuring out. So um, welcome to the party. Um, without some kind of intervention, these children, by the way, I've been told that um, the West Bank population is about 60%, 21 years or younger. It's a very, very young population. All the more reason to be there working with schools. So these kids, without intervention, will repeat this path of substandard living and really no hope for the future. That's why we're there. We give them that hope for themselves as well as being an effective agent of change, which they need badly uh, for their community. That's the Hebron School, opened in 1954. Had the uh, first class of 13 young boys. I'm, I'm going to go to that slide really quickly because obviously the school is not about the building, it's about the kids in the building. There we go. That's a picture of the first class in 1954, and now fast forward to 2023, we have almost 500 children in the school. Um, and they're in color these days, which is kind of nice, not black and white. Um, 
all Muslim students, K through six, boys and girls. And that's unusual because a lot of these schools don't have the girls in the same school as the boys. Um, yeah, that's said the Romans 500. It's all an Arabic curriculum. And as I said before, I think it's illegal to proselytize. So the good news is we get to have the Injil in our, in our talks. And uh, that, that goes a long way. Um, in fact, because of that, the fact that it's illegal to proselytize, and the fact that we get to use the Injil means creativity is, is paramount in how we present our morning, our morning talks. We tell a story quite a bit about one time Rada had two boys come up on stage and do some role, role play. And one was told to be a doctor, and one was told to be the patient. And she told the doctor, okay, without touching your patient, please heal your patient. Whatever's wrong with them, you need to heal them. And the boy, to his credit, said, well, I can't heal that way. As a doctor, I could operate or give him medicine, maybe help him in that regard, but only God can heal that way without touching them. And Rada said, that's right, it's a very good answer. And had the boy sit down, and then she proceeded to tell all the stories, many of the stories in the New Testament, about how Jesus healed, lepers, blind, deaf, whatever. And that was all they said, all she said. On the way out, the two boys are talking to one another, and she overhears the conversation. And one boy says to the other, if only God can heal that way, and Jesus healed that way, then Jesus must be God. So they got it. They connected the dots. And that's how we try to teach them. Let them process on their own without screaming things at them from the Bible. So that works a lot. Um, we have another instance where a young lady who went through our school through sixth grade, and then she went on to a, uh, a, a government school. One morning she was in uh, uh, Islam class, and she was asked to read a passage from the, from the Quran. She looked down and said, I, I can't read it. And the, and the teacher, knowing where she had come from, said, oh, you were, you were brainwashed by the Christian school down the street. I know how it works. So passed over her and had someone else had to do the reading. Well, later that day, this young girl came back to our school to visit and talked to Rauda about her day and, said that, um, and, and shared the story about how she couldn't read it. She said, it wasn't a matter of me not wanting to, I could not read the Quran. There was a black cross suspended over the page, and she couldn't make out any of the words. Powerful stuff, and we know God's working, no question. That's, that's a snapshot of the Hebron school, and we're going to go to Bethlehem. This is the, oh, the crown jewel in, in, in terms of, of buildings. I think it's 60,000 square feet, 2014. We have two science labs, a library. What else? Um, music room, art room. It's, it's an amazing facility. Soccer field now, which you don't see in the picture. It's an older picture. Um, and this, this school is uh, pre-K through 12. And I'll switch to some of the kids here right away. It's just not about the building, like I said. Thank you. That's um, morning uh, uh, Bible, Bible study time. This school is pre-K through 12th grade. Enrollment is up around 500 students also, still growing. And unlike the Hebron School, which is all Arabic curriculum, this is a bilingual program of English and Arabic, both. So that's, that's um, why we have a lot of American volunteers coming over to help um, teach that English uh, 
skill into the, into the program. It's a mix of Muslim and Christian students, and to my way of thinking, that's one of the best things about this, this whole ministry. We have Muslims and Christians in the same school. Kids are friends. They, they don't line up differently. They don't make fun of each other. They're all just kids, and that's just so fun to see. Um, we do have a, a, a purposeful mix of tw- no more than 25% Muslim and 75% Christian. And the reason for that is if you, if you have more Muslims than that, they begin to have demands you can't say no to in terms of how to run the school. So to maintain our Christian distinctiveness, we maintain that ratio. Which at first I was a little bit, we need to reach more Muslims, but the, the, the fact of the matter is the Christians themselves, um, traditional Christians or historical Christians, Orthodox and what have you, and they truly don't have a sense of, of, their, of their faith, quite honestly. So we're... We have our work cut out for us on both sides of that, uh, both sides of the aisle. Um, we have an American Christian curriculum, which is one of the very few schools in the area that do that, so that's very helpful too. And uh, because it's through high school, we get to train their minds as well as minister to the hearts. And that is something we're really working hard on. Um, we really focus on, on teaching critical thinking skills rather than rote memorization very common in the um, public schools is just rote memorization. It's, it's bone-crushingly boring, but that's how they do their education. But we teach them how to think, essentially. Think about it. It goes a long way to helping them become believers because you need to think through what makes sense, what's true here. And without, without that thought process in place, you really can't do that. So it's a big part of our, our focus in the, in the Bethlehem School. And our, our target, our, our ultimate goal, is to raise up a new generation of biblically-oriented leaders who can lead with wisdom and, and, uh, and patience. Um, and we've seen a lot of good things going on with the kids. Uh, school opened in 2014. The top three grades have eight or ten kids each, so we have pretty small classes. Now, when they get purged from the system, we'll be up to maybe 25 or 30 per class. Um, but... Um, Last year's class, well, they were they were smart. They were <laughs> they were a bright group of kids. We had a, um, a science teacher, a physics teacher. We had actually pursued young man, still in college actually, to to be a teacher in our school, and he came on board, and a really bright guy. And he came to us and said, uh, "There's a NASA challenge in Palestine. Now it's designed for college kids and post grad kids." I think I can get some teams uh, entered if I could do that. I said, yeah, sure, go for it, which we did. So we sent two three-person teams to this thing. It was a 36-hour lock-in, and they had to work on the, the uh, theme was uh, life support on a mission to Mars. So they spent, spent a day and a half working out some something in science. It's very sciencey. It's beyond me. But um, the bottom line is one of our teams won first place. The other team was voted most popular. So we, we brought it all that time. It was, uh, it was fun to watch. Um, and, and beyond that, we've seen uh, our, our kids who graduated doing very well. Some are going to college here in the States. One's going to University of Miami. Uh, one is at University of Texas. In fact, we heard last month, apparently the way they do it there is all of the freshman class, I think there were 1,200 kids, took a, a science test mostly for placement purposes, I guess. And this fellow, Jihan, who was one of our students, first place. 
highest, highest score on the 1200. Amazing stuff. So that's the schools, um, but I want to also mention how we're doing in, in the situation with the war, because everyone asks, how are we doing, how are we doing? Well, the short answer is we're doing fine. Uh, we, both schools are 40 or 50 miles from the Gaza Strip, so we're not in direct line of fire. Uh, that being said, there has been a couple close, case, uh, close calls with missiles. Uh, you may know this about the Hamas missiles. They're basically homemade, and they go where they want to go. Uh, and some did stray over our area, and were fortunately knocked on by the Iron Dome. So it's a couple close calls, but so far everyone has been uh, safe. Um, and, and it's interesting because we're safe not just physically, but the, we, we're discovering both the kids and the staff love being on campus, unlike a lot of places. They, they do want to go to school. They feel safe physically, and they feel safe emotionally, which is really good. The staff has worked hard to let them know, you know what? Life is horrible, but God is still in control. And they've taken that to heart. And they all want to be on campus, which is really good. Um, recently, there's been more raids in the West Bank, typically up north, um, where the Israeli Defense Force is rooting out Hamas sympathizers. And these happen randomly, and there's really no, no telling when or where they'll happen. So when that started happening, month or so, I guess, there, there's been a lot more uncertainty in the area. So there's still lots of stress in the air, uh, just not knowing. Uh, road closures, they're, they're a lot tougher on uh, checkpoints than they used to be. Typically, you go over there, you wave your right on through. Now it's stop, who are you, where are you going, who's your mother, all that kind of stuff. So it's a lot of, a lot of tension is, um, is in the air. But again, as I say, God is still in control, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful you folks because you're involved in missions even though it may not be a name for everything you do we know that but uh, we're thankful for what you do and uh, we, we want to um, just cling to that as we leave here knowing that you're doing what you do here whether it be speaking personally to people about Jesus or financially helping whatever it might be our job is a different realm it's, it's uh, helping uh, over overseas but we're all in this together and uh, we just thank you for being partners with us. That's it. David, thank you. This is going on like 24-7. And the, the point that they've made about, you know, very true in the American lifestyle is, you know, on Monday we're business, on Sunday we're church, on Saturday we're sports and stuff like that. This is like the lifestyle. The kids go home into Muslim families, but they're counteracted on the daytime. You know, in the, the leading, one of the stories they told us about was, uh, if I get it right, a little girl went home and her dad was making a decision. And the little girl was in their, their school and she said, uh, well, what's the right thing to do? And the dad just kind of looked at her like, I'd never thought about it that way before. And uh, they didn't know how the end of the story came out, but the little girl had an impact on her father. And um, there was another person over there in seeing what God's doing in the area of, uh, I'll make it as short as a little bit longer. Some guy was an alcoholic, beat his family and going to all kinds of problems. And he, um, he didn't want to live that way. So his answer was, I'll, I'll make my pilgrimage to Mecca. That'll change my life. 
And, uh, but he started praying to Jesus, said, well, if you really are, you know, God and everything like that, show me in a way that I can know. And he had a vision uh, of God. He was awake, and it was a vision of Jesus came to him. And Jesus put his hand on his chest, and, you know, being Arabic, dark hair and everything like that, all the hair where the hand touched turned white. And, and he then used that, called his wife to, I become a Christian. How do you become a Christian in Saudi Arabia? You know, and all this kind of stuff. But he had this emblem on his chest where Jesus touched him and uh, used that. Uh, now, that, goes, that story goes back years, right? And he's been using it because he's in full-time ministry now, uh, winning uh, people. And so God's moving in the area. And I want to thank everybody here that sows into missions because uh, we're kind of figuring it out. We've known, uh, or we started supporting uh, Holy Land Ministry under the director of it, uh, Ron Armstrong, before they came on. So about 12, 14 years, something like that. We've been standing with, and your your support in the missions uh, has helped us do that uh, every month to send them a check. And uh, those kids that you saw in the pictures that you have you have a part in their life. And I think sometimes we lose the sight, and that's why this year I've wanted to bring more of our missionaries in because since we haven't had the the missions conference in so long you kind of lose connection on the people, what they're doing, and the struggles that they walk through. Let's all stand. All right.